Sanctuary. My name is Lara Nichols and today I'm recording on the wild coastline of Gadabnod country in southwest Victoria um, from my mum's house actually because we are in the southern hemisphere in the middle of our summer university break and I have packed up all of my PhD thesis and research and brought it down here to spend time with family and hopefully get some chapters uh, finished and submitted. Now, I must apologise for the surprisingly extended break that I've had since the last episode, which was about women and the law in the 19th century. But COVID really interfered in Canberra, and I just found it was really difficult to um, record and to interview people. And I also found I got pretty involved with my PhD. And also I took on another podcast project, which I was co-producing with the Gender Institute at ANU, about Virginia Woolf and A Room of One's Own. So that is called Reading the Room and that's a separate podcast, but I can recommend that um, for my listeners because even though Virginia Woolf is a 20th century phenomena, she was born in the 19th century and a lot of her work comes out of the stereotypes and conditioning and social mores of the 19th century. But enough about that. Um, as I said, I'm here down at Gadabinod country in the southwest of Victoria. I'm in a pretty homemade studio here so there may be dog noises and barking and some birds and the ocean which is crazy at the moment and even maybe some children. Um, so I apologize for that in advance but we're just going to roll with it because we really want to get this podcast done today. Um, so today the topic is fantastic. It is the late 18th century artist Sarah Stone who lived her entire life um, in London. She was the first female artist to sketch and paint the natural history specimens brought back to England by Captain James Cook following his second voyage to the Pacific um, in 1772 to 1775. And I have a theory, um, and that is that she is the first woman artist in Britain to be given a solo exhibition in a public gallery. I might be wrong, so I'm very happy to take um, some critique on that. But um, for the moment, I think I'm right in saying that. She really was remarkable and her work is absolutely exquisite. A number of um, examples are in Australian museums and galleries, um, but also an incredible amount in British museums and, of course, also um, the Bishop Museum in Hawaii. I first presented a version of this talk to the British Art Network in September 2021. And I have since refined and embellished that text a bit with some new findings, including some very exciting new information um, found through the baptismal records for Sarah Stone. So we now have her birth date, which is incredibly exciting. Now, before we head back to London in the late 18th century, I'd like to acknowledge the superb piano sonata by the 18th century London composer Jane Savage in the introduction which is by the American classical musician and scholar Alyssa Freeman, who has an extraordinary project called Her Classical that records hitherto lost works by 18th century women composers, which is very niche um, and very exciting because it's uh, quite hard to find recordings of um, works by 18th century women composers. So thank you so much, Alyssa, for um, giving me permission to um, use your wonderful recording. I was so thrilled to find this piece of music because Jane Savage led a parallel life with Sarah Stone in London. They were born in the 1750s 
um, and died in the early 19th century. They both married around the same time, Sarah in 1789 and Jane in 1790, and they both resided at times in Holborn and Bloomsbury in London. And I kind of wonder whether they might have known each other. I, I have a feeling that they did, which is a pretty nice thought. The title of my paper is a bit crazy. It's called Sarah Stone and the Holothosaicon as a creative space. And I'm going to explain to you in this paper exactly what the Holothosaicon was. But it was a museum, a natural history museum in um, Great Britain, in London. Um, and it's the topic of um, this paper. So Sarah Stone and the Holothosaicon as a creative space in 18th century London. A curious watercolour dated the 30th of March 1785, depicting the perspective view of Sir Ashton Lever's museum at Leicester Square in London by the 18th century British artist Sarah Stone, emerged at Sotheby's Sydney Auction Rooms in August 2000. It had been consigned along with six other drawings of birds by the artist from a collection in Salisbury, England, and was acquired by the State Library of New South Wales in Australia. It is certainly unique among interior views of British Enlightenment museums because it is one of the earliest and perhaps first known museum interiors to be painted by an English female artist. Consumed by his passion for natural history, Stone's patron Sir Ashton Lever moved his museum to London from his family seat at Old Crinton Hall in Manchester in 1774 naming it the Holofazikon, a lofty word which he made up based on ancient Greek to mean the whole of nature, Lever knew his collection was special and believed it was scientifically important. For nearly 30 years, Stone almost exclusively painted specimens inside this museum, both at Leicester Fields and when it moved in 1786 to Blackfriars Bridge. It was Stone's creative space, her studio if you like, and her livelihood and she was good at her job. The drawings that she made there have become modern-day treasure maps, wayfinders for scholars trying to identify rare and important artefacts and specimens linked to James Cook's voyages of discovery in the 1770s, now dispersed all around the world through museums and private collections. By the time she came to paint the interior view in 1785, Stone was well on her way to completing the thousand-plus drawings she made in her lifetime, depicting the diverse objects captured inside London's most famous Wunderkammer. Among its treasures was the large collection of specimens from Cook's second and third voyages to the Pacific, which he had personally given to Lever. Stone was among the first artists to paint these remarkable objects, each individual bird, shell, coral, sponge and fossil stacked in her perspectival view had its own individual watercolour drawing. She must have been pleased with her interior view of the museum because she exhibited it at the Royal Academy in 1786, the very year that Lever lost the entire enterprise in a lottery. And as I argue here, Stone's perspective view functioned like a treasured, souvenir for both Stone and Lever in the face of a loss equally traumatic to artist and patron. It served as a tangible record of the unique space which had given Stone great creative agency. Toxophilite, ornithologist, antiquarian, dilettante, gentleman and perhaps somewhat of an enthusiastic duffer, Sir Ashton Lever was born near Manchester in 1729. 
His father was the High Sheriff of Lancashire and owned significant property holdings in the country, most of which Sir Ashton sold to finance his growing museum. He started out with a modest shell collection and an aviary of 4,000 birds at Elkrington Hall, which he opened as a house museum to the public in 1771. Possibly Stone visited the house and may have made sketches of its fantastical contents. It was certainly popular, but the crowds became so large and intrusive that Lever moved the enterprise to the prestigious Leicester House in London in 1774, which I think, incidentally, is the year that Sotheby's was also founded. Um, but anyway, um, when he moved it to the Leicester um, House, it became one of the first London museums to charge an entry fee. It also became the first museum to commission a woman artist to draw its contents. This paper presents new biographical information about Stone and argues that her entire practice revolved around the museum. More importantly, it was the key source of her livelihood and indeed fame in her own time. It repositions her within art history and considers her work as a professional, creative artist of the Metropole. A wonderful dashy portrait of her by the society painter Samuel Shelley depicts the youthful artist, palette in hand, cheerfully sitting next to a stuffed cockatoo which she is about to paint. She also exhibited drawings that highlighted her work in the museum. In 1780, Stone exhibited her first works at the Society of Artists, titled Butterflies in Sir Ashton Lever's Museum. And in 1781, she exhibited four works at the Royal Academy, which were also painted inside the museum. Three drawings of birds, including a peacock and one of shells. Possibly the work Shells, dated 1781 in the collection of the National Gallery of Australia in Canberra. Or maybe Study of Shells and Coral in the Whitworth Museum in Manchester. This convincingly suggests that her identity and practice were linked, not only to scientific drawing, but also to the museum. However, to date, Stone's work has largely been considered within the conventional context of ethnography and natural history, whereas this paper sees her work as making an important contribution to 18th century British art and art history. Seen through another lens of feminist art history, her voluminous drawings shed new light on the long-held view that female natural history painters perceived themselves as lady amateurs. Stone, on the other hand, seems to happily occupy an unusual position for a woman at the time as a paid professional artist. When Stone painted her perspective view in 1785, both artist and patron were no doubt worried about the museum's fate and set about recording its curatorial scheme. By late 1783, Lever knew he could no longer afford the rent of £600 per annum on Leicester House, which was, after all, the official residence of the Prince of Wales, later King George II. Nor could he manage the upkeep of the museum, so he petitioned the government to acquire it for the British Museum. Parliament declined the offer, which is not surprising given that the collection was then estimated to contain 28,000 objects valued at around £53,000. In want of an aspiring cashed-up museum keeper, Lever applied to the Parliament for a permit to dispose of its contents by lottery, which was duly granted and eventually drawn on the 24th of March 1786. A legal stationer by the name of James Parkinson had the winning ticket and miraculously decided to keep the museum for the next 20 years. 
but he did move it to a new building, the Rotunda, in the less fashionable and infinitely cheaper locale of Blackfriars Bridge. Lever himself probably never saw the collection in the new building, having died suddenly at Bull's Head Inn in Manchester on the 1st of February 1788, giving rise to tragic reports which surmised that Sir Ashton's death was due to poison self-administered. Perhaps he was inconsolable on account of the undignified losses of not only his money and properties, but also that of his treasured museum. Stone continued to work for Parkinson alongside her successor, the artist Charles Reuben Riley, and produced a further perspectival view of the new space, which was published in the handbook to the new museum in 1790. However, Parkinson's cost-cutting measures were not enough to save the museum, and in 1806 he auctioned its entire contents over the course of a very long 65 days. The perspective view was one of only two drawings included in the sale and was purchased for £2.10 shillings by Mrs Oliphant. In fact, Lever had been careful to ensure that Stone's drawings were excluded from his original inventory for the lottery in 1786. Instead, he took them home to Elkrington Hall after the whole punishing ordeal was over. Stone must have been a draw card for Lever, and between January and March of 1784, he gave her what we would call today a solo exhibition, advertised as the following. A large room of transparent drawings from the most curious specimens in the collection, consisting of above 1,000 different articles executed by Miss Stone, a young lady who is allowed by all artists to have succeeded in the effort beyond imagination. These will continue to be open for the inspection of the public until they are removed into the country. Admittance half a crown each. Good fires in all the galleries. This exhibition and Lever's promotion of her probably makes Sarah Stone the first British woman to be given a solo exhibition in a museum in London, if not the Western world. Perhaps the fires in every room were also an added attraction for Stone while working inside the Leverian Museum. It is quite likely that she had no studio of her own and otherwise shared her father's studio at home in their household of five. The museum certainly offered both warmth and room and became her creative space. Yet properly understanding her practice has been hampered by inconclusive biographical information. Except for the National Gallery of Australia, which updated her biography after acquiring a beautiful and detailed watercolour of South Pacific shells, most public collections rely on Christine Jackson and Adria and Kepler's texts, which both cite circa birth dates of 1760 or 1762. However, through careful sifting of the baptismal records in various parishes in London, it is evident that Sarah was the oldest daughter of a fan painter, James Stone and his wife Catherine Knee Winkles. She was born on the 3rd of September in 1759 in the parish of St James in Westminster, London. She had two sisters, Anne and Frances Mary, who were both baptised in the parish of St Giles in the Fields in Holborn, suggesting that the family moved to the Bloomsbury area after Sarah's birth. Both sisters were formal witnesses to her marriage to John Langdale Smith at nearby St George's Church, Bloomsbury, on the 8th of September, 1789, the same church in which Frances Mary would also marry. This new information suggests that Sarah Stone's home and life had remained in the Holborn-Bloomsbury locale since the 1760s. 
At her marriage, she is recorded as being a spinster of this parish, confirming that she resided in Bloomsbury, clearly defining her as an artist of the wider city of London. Despite painting objects from the farthest reaches of the planet, Stone was a woman artist of the Metropole, who lived and worked within the five-mile radius between Bloomsbury and Leicester Fields, regularly making the 20-minute walk to where her employer had his impressive museum. When Parkinson moved the Laverian Museum to Blackfriars Bridge in Southwark, she simply walked in the opposite direction. There is significant evidence in her own work to suggest that the Holofer's icon was her creative space and that she used it like a studio. Her biographer, Christine Jackson, believes that Stone painted her first specimens on commission for Sir Ashton Lever in early 1778. The first drawing was a single specimen of a fossil crinoid, now contained in the folio of 93 drawings in the Natural History Museum in London. Although undated, it is tantalisingly inscribed with the following. This was the first drawing Miss Stone did for me. Full stop, Ashton Lever. This inscription is clearly evidence of a commission between artist and patron. There is also further evidence of her frequently painting inside the museum. Inscribed in the folio owned by the Earl of Derby in the collection of Knowsley Hall in Liverpool is a folio of works titled Drawings of Natural History, Volume 1, Birds by Stone, 1777-1783, to which was acquired at auction in 1830. The folio is annotated with a note by an unidentified hand that reads, About this time I was in London and saw Miss Stone at museum. When the museum contents were auctioned in 1806, Lord Stanley, the then Earl of Derby, bought at least a hundred stuffed birds, to which he had added this bound volume of drawings 24 years later. And perhaps the final piece of evidence of her working almost exclusively inside Lever's museum lies in a drawing currently regarded as an unattributed copy of Stone's remarkable perspective view. Now in the British Museum it is inscribed verso, Sir Ashton Lever's Museum, Leicester House, Leicester Square, from a drawing made on the spot. This work has always been regarded as a copy made by another artist and has been dated circa 1835 based on J. Watman watermarks on the paper. However, I suggest here that this watercolour is potentially by stone and that attempting to perhaps rekindle fugitive memories of the museum and her defining experience painting the cherished objects in it, she made this second version 50 years later. The British Museum copy is not an exact replica in that it is slightly larger and it contains more information in the foreground such as the characteristic barley twist balustrade adorned by a fish trap and the Georgian window in the extreme lower left edge of the composition adorned by a central giant coral tower. It is also a brighter green in tone. However, in every other way, it is loving, it, there is a love, mm -hmm. it is also a brighter green in tone. However, in every other way, there is a loving fidelity to the composition and detail of the original. If she did not keep any drawings from her years painting the museum, could this be her last effort to honour her memory of the Holofer's icon? Sarah Stone was unique in her enterprise. While she was not the only artist to draw inside the Holofer's icon, Stone was undoubtedly the most dedicated and prolific artist working there. She was also the only woman to do so professionally. 
How she came to be commissioned is undocumented, nor do we know how much her patron paid her for the thousand-plus drawings she painted for him. It is likely that Lever noticed her regular visits to his museum and admired her work while she painted in situ, and then decided to engage her. It was fashionable in the 18th century for artists and amateurs to draw inside private houses and famous museums. It was also popular to paint pictures of artists sketching in European galleries or amongst the antique ruins of classical cities on the Grand Tour. Giovanni Panini's Gallery of Views of Ancient Rome and Johann Zoffany's Tribuna of the Uffizi spring to mind. However, there appear to be few drawings of women painting inside museums prior to Stone's practice in the Holofysikon. There is William Chambers' exquisite watercolour drawing of a woman sketching the antiquities collection inside the dining room of Charles Townley's house in Park Street, Westminster, before it was acquired by the government grant for the British Museum. It is difficult to deduce whether that elegantly draped woman was a professional artist or student, or perhaps a lady pursuing her accomplishments to impress a suitor. One could leave it at that, except for the intriguing presence of a silk headband to keep her curls from tumbling into her eyes, suggesting that she is concentrating seriously on her drawing. There is even some speculation that the gentleman, taking such close interest in the woman sketching in Chambers' drawing, is in fact an airbrushed version of Townley himself. The fact that she is clearly sketching the drunken fawn and not Townley's new prize acquisition, the Discobolus, upon whose plinth she sits nonchalantly with her back turned, is a tantalising digression. If Chambers has depicted Townley, the drawing may resemble Stone's paternalistic arrangement with her own patron, Sir Ashton Lever, who was not only a contemporary of Townley, but also a Lancashire gentleman with a famous London-based collection. Chambers' drawing is unique in its inclusion of an 18th-century woman artist at work. Thanks to people like Lever and Townley, sketching in museums became a fashionable pastime and a genuine element of artistic training in the early 19th century. Based on Martin Myron's new research, we know that students from the Royal Academy and amateur women artists could apply for a student ticket to draw from the antique in the newly installed Townley galleries at the British Museum. However, this was not until about 1808, at least 30 years after Stone had made her first drawings at the Holofysikon. Stone's work was greatly admired in her own time for several reasons. Firstly, while her drawings are perhaps not fastidiously exact, there is an intangible fidelity to the objects themselves which has allowed contemporary scholars to identify them based on her drawings. Adrienne Kepler, whose um, work has been an extraordinary revelation in the research behind um, Sarah Stone's work and indeed um, the location of various objects that were had been brought back from Cook's voyages. Um, it took her 40 years to write that book um, and we really must take, pay tribute to her extraordinary scholarship in producing such an outstanding publication and also pay our condolences to her um, colleagues, family and friends um, and mark her recent passing. It's a great loss to scholarship in general. Um, Adrienne Kepler points out that Stone's research was totally dependent upon Stone's drawings and that without them she could not identify many of the objects from Cook's voyages. Secondly, Stone displayed a keen ability to enliven and animate the objects. 
And finally, she had a remarkable sense of colour accuracy, which she no doubt learnt from her father, the fan painter James Stone, who would have taught her to source and mix pigments. Because many of her works are still in bound volumes, the colour remains brilliant and fresh today. Her image of feathered godheads, objects now residing in the British Museum in Honolulu, um, shows the sense of animation that Stone could achieve in her work compared to an alternative depiction by another significantly more famous artist at the time, Philip de Lauterberg. When looking at the real object alongside her drawing of the feathered godhead, we sense that it has a life of its own. And all of these images can be seen in the PowerPoint that I have posted onto my website, um, www net. Um, so you could potentially open that PowerPoint and look through it as you're listening to this podcast. Um, so Stone's work reminds us that when she painted these objects, they had only just been plundered from their original environment. And as such, they were indeed evidence of a remarkably diverse range of continuous cultural practice in the Pacific. Stone was able to capture that excitement and the revelation visitors must have experienced when they saw these fantastical objects in the museum. In comparison to a later natural history artist who also painted in the Laverian, Alexandra Isidore Leroy de Bard, in Stone's drawings, the objects appear as if they exist, whereas de Bard's depictions, although exquisitely beautiful and striking in their scale, appear somewhat like an artifice, as though we are looking at Tronliol. Stone's unique talent brought her new patrons, including Dr John White and Thomas Pennant. White engaged her to illustrate his journal of a voyage to New South Wales in 1790, which included the illustration of numerous species of mammals, birds, insects and reptiles he had brought back from that colony when he accompanied the first fleet as its Surgeon General. The surgeon arranged to send his specimens to the Laverian Museum for Stone to paint, and the ensuing book became very popular among English readers, clamouring for images of the exotic flora and fauna flourishing in the empire's latest colonial possession. After Lever's death, the travel writer and antiqu antiquarian and naturalist Thomas Pennant commissioned Stone to make drawings for his four-volume book, A View of Hindustan. Interestingly, Pennant also bought at least three lottery tickets, hoping to win Lever's Museum and potentially Sarah Stone along with it. Although we do not know the commercial nature of the commission, Pennant refers to Stone as my paintress in the text. He also owned a copy of Captain James Cook's A Voyage to the Pacific, which he grandeurized with original watercolour drawings by artists including Stone. Now in the collection of the Dixon Library in Sydney, Pasted into it is Stone's drawing of a Viestiara Cochinae Liwi, whose feathers were used to make Hawaiian feathered cloak. Although Stone continued to paint for Parkinson in the Laverian Museum at Blackfriars Bridge, after Sir Ashton Lever died in 1787, life changed for her in other ways. In 1789, she married Captain John Langdale Smith from Hammersmith at St George's Bloomsbury. The couple had two children. Eliza Jane was born in 1792 but sadly died in infancy and a son, Henry Stone Smith, was born in 1795. She records her new home at 3 Cowley Street, Westminster in the catalogue for her final exhibition at the Society of Artists in 1791 where she showed a yellow-headed parrot from the Brazils and the mandarin duck. 
something else important happened to her practice. In his role in the Royal Navy, Captain Smith travelled extensively. According to their son, Captain Smith brought back live birds from the West Indies for Sarah to draw from life. She no longer needed to paint lifeless taxidermy, but instead was surrounded by noisy, brightly coloured birds trilling throughout the house, no longer stuck on a perch in a glass box. The family still has a handwritten note from their son Henry, who wrote in May 1881 about his mother's drawing of a bird. This drawing of the bird Topiel, a bird brought back from the West Indies by my late dear father Captain John Langdale Smith, then commander of the HM ship Penguin, about 1806 or 1808, was made by my dear late mother Mrs Smith while the bird was still living and domesticated with us. And I just think that quote is um, so wonderful. Um, and of course, it is directly from um, the remarkable book by Christine Jackson on Sarah Stone. And if you can find a copy of that book, I highly recommend it. It is an absolutely beautiful publication, along with um, Adrian Kepler's publication. So from this quote, from um, the papers um, kept by um, their son, an endearing image emerges of the Smiths in their modest brick house in Westminster, surrounded by their parrots. One is left with a dual sense of Sarah Stone, first painting in the petrified space of the museum, which provided a young woman artist with unusual creative freedoms, and then in her new married life as Sarah Smith, confined perhaps to the strictures of marriage, and yet suddenly free to paint live birds fluttering about a new creative space in fact, her new home. Thank you so much for joining us today to listen to this podcast about the remarkable artist Sarah Stone. And to conclude, we're going to fade out with some more music from Alyssa Freeman, who um, is the founder of HerClassical.com. And again, she is playing the music of Jane Savage, who I believe strongly was a contemporary of Sarah Stone and quite possibly they may have even been friends. Thank you. Mm -hmm.